The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm talking with Azim Kamisa. Azim has been called an inspiration worldwide, hailed by dignitaries such as the Dalai Lama, former President Bill Clinton, and Vice President Al Gore. Azim carries his message of forgiveness, peace, and hope into a world in desperate need of each. Following the loss of his only son, Tariq, in 1995 to a senseless gang-related murder, Azim chose the path of forgiveness and compassion rather than revenge and bitterness. And this amazing choice led to the establishment of the Tariq Kamisa Foundation and the subsequent forgiveness movement, which has reached millions. Azim's an award-winning author, international speaker, and peace advocate. Welcome, Azim. Thank you, Cheryl. Thanks for having me on your show. I'm very happy to have you. Uh, I, I've actually had a few shows lately on forgiveness, and it just seems um, so deeply important to me right now, the the whole uh, how do we get to forgiveness and, and how, do we, how do we bring that into the public conversation and the private. Um, you've lived through something that nearly every parent would find unimaginable, even though I work with grief every day, I am not able to imagine it. Can you tell us what happened with your son, Tariq, and um, give us a little a, a little bit of the story for people who do not know? Yes, the uh, tragedy occurred 21 years ago in 1995. My son, Tariq, was a student at San Diego State University, great kid, and... Um, he was a good writer, good photographer, and was studying, you know, in, in, uh, with the hope eventually to become a journalist with National Geographic. He was a good photographer. And mm. he worked on Fridays and Saturdays as a pizza delivery man and was lured to a bogus address by a youth gang. And uh, he went to the apartment building and knocked on many doors and found out nobody had ordered the pizzas. So he came back to his car climbed in the driver's side seat and uh, and he was about to leave the, uh, the, 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 the site of the crime and he was accosted by four youth gang members. Three of them were 14-year-old and the leader of the gang was an 18-year-old who handed a 9mm handgun to a 14-year-old and as my son is trying to back his car from the driveway, 
the leader gave him the command, bust him bones. They have an initiation ritual, and he fired one round, which came uh, through the driver's side window and entered my son's body under the left shoulder blade and traveled across the upper part of his chest, destroying all the vital organs. Mm. And um, Tariq died a couple of minutes later, uh, slumped on the front seat of his car over a lousy pizza at the age of 20. So needless to say, it brought my life to a crashing halt. I don't know what is more complex for a parent than to lose a child. And it was the same for me. I went through all the emotions and hopelessness, despair, overwhelming grief. Uh, I, I really did not know how to live without him. I was suicidal at one point. Um, but uh, I have survived the tragedy. And uh, what I uh, and I took a little different response to the tragedy. I mean, I did not know much about youth gang. I worked uh, as an international investment banker. I speak a half a dozen languages. I was born in Kenya, educated in England, uh, and, uh, and have Eastern roots. And a lot of my work was international, and I traveled the world and had no clue there were such things as youth gangs. Mm. And then uh, when Tariq was murdered by a 14-year-old, I started to look at the problem, and needless to say, uh, youth gangs is a huge problem. It's the second largest reason we use young souls. The first is automobile accidents. Mm. And every, every community in our country, both urban and suburban, is uh, plagued with this malaise. And I was surprised that, that, uh, that we had uh, let this get out of hand. I mean, the question I asked is how did we get to a place where children kill children. Mm, this is yes. not a mark of a civil society. Where did we go wrong as a society or as a culture? And uh, essentially, I saw that there were victims at both ends of the gun. Um, the enemy wasn't the 14-year-old who killed my son. Rather, the societal forces that pressure many young souls, must, and also uh, young souls of color, to essentially, you know, fall through the crack. So nine months after Tariq died, uh, I decided, having learned these horrific statistics, and they are horrific, um, I decided to help me and my family deal with this tragedy in a meaningful way, in a positive way. Uh, to do something about it. Mm. So the Tariq Hamisa Foundation's mission statement is to stop kids from killing kids by breaking the cycle of youth violence. And essentially have three mandates. Our first and foremost mandate is to save lives of children because we lose way too many yes. every single day. I mean, if you remember the tragedy in Newtown, Connecticut, you know, five, six, seven-year-old were gunned down in machine gun fire. Yes. I mean, what, what are machine guns doing on our streets? We are not a front line of a war zone. Yes. 
And our second mandate is to empower the right choices so kids don't fall to the crack and take a life of gangs and guns and violence and drugs and alcohol. And our third mandate is to teach the principles of nonviolence, of empathy, of compassion, of forgiveness, of peacemaking, because violence is a learned behavior. No child was born violent, including the one that killed my son. His name is Tony. So if you accept that, that if you accept that as a truism that violence is a learned behavior, nonviolence can also be a learned behavior, but you have to teach it because kids are not going to learn that through osmosis. And schools don't have the mandate to do that. And where do our kids learn nonviolence? I mean, look at the television, the news, the media. I mean, the movies, the video games is violence, 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 and more violence. So by the time our kids get to grade one, they're six years old, they've seen over 100,000 images of violence. So I ended up forgiving my son's killer and invited his grandfather and guardian to join me. And we've created... uh, in, through the foundation, we just celebrated our 20th year last October. Congratulations. Program- Thank you. We have several programs that make up uh, what we call the safe school model. Our first program is a live uh, assembly with the grandfather and me. And we are introduced. This man's grandson killed this man's son. And here they are together in the spirit of forgiveness and compassion and, uh, and and brotherhood. I mean, I've, he's still with me 20 years later. I would never have met him had his grandson not killed my son. Mm. Plus, he's African-American. I am uh, uh, Eastern. Uh, he's Christian. He grew up as a Baptist from the South. Uh, I'm a Muslim. I'm a Sufi Muslim. And his grandson killed my son, and we are brothers. And, we, and not only that we have been together for 20 years, we will continue to be together till we are not able to do this work. This ministry is as important to him as it's been. When I met him, I told him I'm not. Soon after I started the foundation, I had the district attorney set up a meeting, and I told him, "Please, I'm not here screaming retribution, revenge that your grandson killed my own one and only son, that he should be hung from the highest pole. Rather, I'm here in the spirit of compassion and forgiveness." Because what I really see is we both lost a child. My son died, and you lost your son to the adult criminal justice system. Tony was the first 14-year-old to be tried as an adult in the state of California. And uh, the reason I reached out to you is because I can't bring Tariq back. He's gone, he's dead, and there's nothing you can do to get Tony out of the criminal justice system. It's not in your hands. And the mission of the foundation is to stop kids from killing kids. It's a lofty mission, and I really can't do this by myself. I'm really to ask for your help. Will you help me? Because it behooves us to work together because your grandson killed my son, and while we can't, I can't bring Tariq back or you can't get Tony out of prison, the one thing you and I can do is make sure no young person ends up dead like Tariq or ends up in prison like Tony. That we can do. Will you help mm. me? Well, and, and that must have so much power with, with uh, 
you know, I've I've raised children. Uh, I remember them all as teenagers. You kind of can't tell them anything uh, in a way, but that's a pretty irrefutable message of forgiveness that the two of you can be in front of a, a whole school full of children um, embodying that principle. That must be very powerful for the kids. It is very powerful. We very much focus on middle school. Tony joined a gang in sixth grade, and he murdered my son in eighth grade. Uh, and we, uh, we, uh, and I've given a thousand school presentations, uh, over a million kids, just pin drop silence. I, ha- I have over 200,000 letters from kids that have heard our message and heard our, our, our teachings on the principles of nonviolence. Uh, besides assembly, we now have an in-classroom curriculum. Uh, we also have after-school groups that deal with issues that lead to gangs and violence. We have uh, what I call a service learning project where the kids actually go out into the community and serve. And then what we've learned in Southern California, where I live, the middle schools have about 1,000 kids. At some place between 8 and 12% of the kids are the challenging kids. And we hook those 8 and 12% with our mentors. Most of our mentors are college age, and they not only work with these challenging kids in schools, but they also work with these kids in their homes and in their community. And in two years, we are able to get rid of gangs where they were failing on state and federal standards. Now they are meeting it. And uh, we are able to cut expulsions and suspensions by 70%. Which is huge. That's an amazing statistic, Azim. Seventy yeah. percent. And so that, yes. to me, that that um, speaks to you know. I live in Oakland, California, which uh, has a, a reputation as uh, a place of violence. Uh, although it, that is not my experience, but it's true that the, the youth in poor and and of color communities in Oakland are really in trouble, you know, and and that link between um, uh, finding meaning in education, having having support, having mentors. You're not only reducing violence, you're also increasing participation, which to me, it does go together, I would think. But um, that's just amazing that it goes together to that degree. Absolutely. You know, I, the, the, you know having done this now for 20 years, uh, and, and I speak worldwide, and having talked to so many kids, what gives me a lot of hope is that uh, not only are these principles that we teach uh, teachable, our kids are hungry for them. Mm. And, uh, and, and when they meet me and uh, uh, the grandfather, uh, which is essentially when they are in middle school, they're probably 11, 12 years old, and, and they've never seen anything like this. When they introduce this man's grandson, killed this man's son, it's the first time in their young lives that they've actually seen an alternative to violence. Most yes. of what they see, 
and mostly what they grow up with is that violence begets more violence. And that they want to, and that they want to win that battle, not lose it. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. They want to be on the top of it. Uh, So the the idea you're conveying that in fact you don't have to play the game. You you don't have to win or lose. Seems very powerful. Yeah, we make it very clear that violence is never the appropriate response, irrespective of the circumstances. You can't kill violence with more violence. You can't kill hate with hate. Only love can do that. And that violence always makes things worse, not better. That if you're going to be a peacemaker, you have to never, ever respond violently, even when you are violated like I was. Mm-hmm. We can all respond with with nonviolence. I think you know, I think you your res- mom- yeah your response though, Azim, goes beyond that because not only did you not respond violently, but to me you responded in in quite a um, you had a very strong forgiving impulse. Uh, and and I know from, you know, uh, certainly much lesser injuries in my life, uh, it took me some time to get there. Uh, right. Not that I ever would consider a destructive act when I'm harmed, but it took quite a while to get to um, real true forgiveness. But you seem to have had that available pretty quickly and um, we're about to have a break so we won't be able to finish this but what do you think uh, you know we can come back to it after the break what do you think uh, set you up in your life to have that available for you the impulse towards forgiveness yeah yeah, that's a good question that's probably why I wrote my first book and I think it came from a spiritual foundation because when I found out that Tariq had been shot and killed my first knee-jerk reaction was I made a mistake because you can't go there. And he just uh, gotten engaged to Jennifer, which was uh, his girlfriend. They'd been dating for a couple of years and moved into the same apartment. So I quickly hung up on homicide and I called uh, his apartment fully expecting him to pick up the phone because he didn't. Jennifer did and she couldn't say anything. Mm. She was just sobbing because she knew that Tariq had been killed before I did. And I was in my kitchen I remember I lost uh, strength in both of my legs as I collapsed to the floor, hit my head against the refrigerator, and, 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 and the pain was so excruciating that I actually had my first out-of-body experience mm-hmm. laying there, c- called up in a ball, and I believe in God, and I believe I went in, uh, into the embrace of God. It was like a nuclear bomb that had exploded in my in my, in my heart, and when the explosion subsided, God returned me back into my body with the wisdom that there are victims at both ends of the gun. Mm. So it didn't come from my intellect or my loving heart. It came from a higher power. And sometimes so, in deep, deep trauma and deep tragedies is a spark of clarity. So that that's came into my into my mind, my best friend was with me and said, whoever these kids are, I hope they fry in hell. Hour and a half after I found out, I told him, I don't feel that way. I see that so there are victims at both ends of the gun. 
that that's a really uh, moving um, experience you're telling me about, and I want to hear more about it as soon as we've had our break. Listeners, you'll find sure. links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America for uh, Facebook, Twitter, etc., and to sign up for my email list. And to find Azim Kamisa, go to www.azimkhamisa.com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Relationship issues, anxious, parenting challenges, no more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Azim Kamisa. The murder of his son, Tariq, catapulted him onto a path towards forgiveness, education, and restorative justice. And um, Azim, just before the break, we were talking about that uh, that moment when you you say you had your first out-of-body experience, you you fell to the floor in extreme pain. I think some people don't understand how physical grief is. Uh, right. That, I know you mean that literally, <laughs> um, yeah. and and that somehow you felt held by something larger that sent you in this direction at that moment. That that extremity somehow activated um, a, a deep spiritual experience. And I also think you're saying you had prepared yourself without knowing it for that, in the sense that you had. Um, learn to face experience with presence through meditation. Would that be fair right. to say? Yes, absolutely. And it's, 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 it was my mainstay back then. 
It is my mainstay today. You know, my practice uh, started at the age of 20, uh, and I meditate an hour a day. Uh, my uh, mom was very spiritual. My dad was a businessman. I grew up with equal emphasis on my career and my spiritual life. And when I lost Tariq at 40, I already had a strong spiritual practice. Um, but I didn't bring my spiritual uh, practice in everything I did. I worked in the in the finance field, which I spent a lot of my time in my head, like most of us do. Uh, I have a spiritual practice, but it was not uh, integrated in my daily life. Mm. And then what I really learned from this experience is that while you're going to get problems in life that your intellect will not solve, even though you might have a PhD or two PhDs, you're going to get problems in your life that your hearts are not going to heal. So where are you? But, but, but having dealt with Tariq, which is the worst thing I have ever experienced in my life, and come out to, to where I am today, uh, it was because of my spiritual foundation, because there are no problems that you're going to get in your life. And I want to repeat that. There are no problems that you're going to get in your life that your spirit cannot solve or heal. And I'm a good example of that. So I encourage the kids today when I am in front of them a lot that, yes, get your career, get your degrees, but make sure you also develop a spiritual practice. It doesn't matter what that is, you know. Mm-hmm. Yes. Whether you're Christian or Jews or Buddhist or Muslims or even atheists, you still have a soul. And that will, get, that will help you get through life a lot better than your intellect and your emotion. Nothing wrong with having a good mind, but it is limited. When you combine it, you know, with the mind, the heart, and the soul, you know, you make better decisions. What you're saying moves me so much because, um, you know, the ways in which we practice uh, in, in life tend to be a source of division, of course, that's in the news a lot right now. And maybe yeah. that's also a, a message that um, you and Ples, um, Tony's grandfather, put forth that you come from really different traditions, but you share uh, being supported by spirit in, in one way or another, that those are, that those are um, compatible there's a compatibility um, in the way that you are using those beliefs. Yes? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, I always tell the kids, if you have an important decision to make, it's fine to go to your mind first because your mind is like a computer. It can analyze. It knows the pros and the cons. I mean, it's better than a computer because a mind is imagination. The computer doesn't. But essentially, it is a analytical faculty. If it, so if you have a decision to make, you go there and you, you basically figure out whether this decision makes sense or doesn't make sense. If it makes sense, then don't stop there. Go to your heart and you ask, ask the question, is it right? Does it feel fair? We all have a sense in our DNA, uh, a sense of what fairness is. Does it feel good? Does it feel right? If it does, don't stop there, because we've all done things. We thought, well, that made a lot of sense, and that really felt good. And later said, why did I do this? <laughs> Take a third step. 
Oh, no, that's never happened to me, Azim. (laughs) Just joking. (laughs) So we say you take the third step. If it makes sense, if it feels good and feels right, ask the spirit. Is it inspiring? Will others follow my lead? Most of us don't take that third step. Mm. And I can guarantee you that if it does make sense, if it does feel good, if it... uh, is inspiring, well, that will be a good decision because the spirit does not make any bad decisions and always helps you make decisions that are in the highest good for you, the other person, and the universe. So bring that faculty to play in your daily lives as I do today. So I think that that uh, is something that uh, we should encourage uh, in our schools, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, evidence now that meditation works, mindfulness works, and this uh, time to have reflection. Uh, I mean, I teach meditation to sixth graders. I love it. How to make them stop because I, I'm able to have them connect with their, what I call the internal GPS system. <laughs> connected to... If you're connected to your soul, you know it's wrong to lie, to cheat, to steal, to kill somebody. Problem is that connection is lacking. This kid who killed my son was under orders from the 18-year-old gang leader. So he had an external GPS system. If he was connected to an internal GPS system, he probably would not have done that. I mean, he's 35 years old now, and I met him when he was 19, my uh, first book was From Murder to Forgiveness. And then three years later, I followed it. Uh, my sequel was From Forgiveness to Fulfillment uh, because the work that I've done in the aftermath of my son's tragedy has been truly very fulfilling. Mm. You know, investment banking was about money. This is about saving lives of kids, which is far more important. And I spent 75% of my time doing this work, and I'm not complaining because it is very fulfilling. And then I just finished a book a year ago called From Fulfillment to Peace. It's a 21-year journey that started very dark with murder, but ended up in peace. And Tony, who is now 35 years old, um, is 12 minutes away from his degree in child psychology. And I've been in his life since he was 19. And I told him, not only have I forgiven you, when you come out of prison, you join your grandfather and me, and you have a job at the Tari Kamisa Foundation. And he wrote the foreword to my last book and did a great uh, job. Uh, so, you know, I can't wait for him to join. We finally have a date in 2018 uh, when he comes out of prison. I think you can see the power of him on stage with his grandfather and me. And when he tells the kids, when I was 11, I joined a gang. When I was 11, I joined a gang. At 14, I killed Mr. Kamisa's son. I spent the last umpteen years in prison. I'm, I'm here to tell you it's not worth it. I wish I could turn the clock back. Of course, you can't turn the clock back, but his intonations are, will be of a person who pulled the trigger. So I think you can see the power of forgiveness that shifted him because we've Absolutely. saved him. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, how many will he say when he's on stage with his grandfather and me? And, you know, so... I, I think it shows that uh, we, you know, forgiveness is something that breaks the cycle. And we've tried an eye for an eye since the last 2,000 plus years. 
where has that got us? Every war created another war, you know, and and, uh, and we spend $600 billion a year on the Department of Defense. Most of that is ammunition and wars, whereas if we can learn to provide, have a new strategy where we can break that cycle, let's save some money and put it in our schools and in, a, in, in, in our roads and bridges and infrastructure. I mean, it's, it, it was the right choice for me, Cheryl. I mean, I could have gone the other way. What good would that have done? And uh, I today enjoy a level of peace I never had. Not that I don't want my son back, but that decision of I course. made 21 years. Yeah, the decision I made 21 years ago to forgive instead of seek revenge has brought me to where I am today. I had no clue back then all that would manifest in my life, but it was the right choice for me. You know, it's interesting you bring up an eye for an eye because I, uh, my father was a minister. He's, he uh, died in 2009, but very strong influence in my life, although I'm not, I practice other things, not Christianity. But so I was exposed to the Bible a lot. Well, eye for an eye is Old Testament. And as far right. as I know, Jesus came into the world uh, with the message uh, of love and forgiveness right. uh, no. <laughs> an evolution from that but but I think that does get quoted a lot as some kind of uh, justification um, right. for for violence or hatred or uh, there's certainly a lot of that out there right now as re- as a response to the Orlando massacre um, yes. So getting that message out there that actually there's no um, evolution of of religion or spiritual practice that goes in the direction of violence. Um, no. <laughs> would you agree? Right. I mean, I would agree totally. I think that uh, even, you know, Christ's daughters that take the plank out of your eyes so you can see the speck in your brother's eye more clearly. And the biggest impediment to forgiveness is judgment. And we judge uh, regularly by what people, you know, what people are, what their race, their religion, even how, even even what they wear. I think, you know, why are we judging people from their clothing? Yes. But we judge all the time. The shapes of their bodies, <laughs> etc. Yeah, exactly. And, and, I, and I figure that, uh, that judgment is a very low vibratory emotion. And, uh, and 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 the biggest impediment to forgiveness. So I think that I rather leave the judgment to the higher power. Mm. I mean, my entire family has forgiven Tony. They have not all met him. They've all met the grandfather. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only person that was not able to forgive Tony was Tariq's fiance Jennifer. In fact, she was very angry with me. How can you forgive Tony? He killed Tariq. And I said, you know, I don't want to go through life in anger and resentment because if I stay in anger and resentment, who am I hurting? Mandela mm-hmm. has a good quote about that. He said, resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for your enemy to die. Yes. So, you know, it's bad for you. And I didn't want to go through life as a victim, you know. I had a very full life, uh, traveled the world, and then I had no life. It literally took all of my willpower to get out of bed and I wanted that life back. And unless you forgive, you remain a victim. So I told Jennifer, I'm going to leave Tony to the higher power. I, is, I truly believe 
that there is no escaping wrongdoing, even if he wasn't caught, you know, serving this long sentence. You know, karma always gets even, and I always thought that would be the higher power. And and Jennifer, unfortunately, you know, wasn't able to get there. I mean, there's healthy ways to grieve, and then there are unhealthy ways to grieve. And the healthy ways to grieve is to meditate, to pray, to read something inspiring, to journal, to exercise, to walk on the beach, to spend time with nature, get therapy, um, uh, you know, go back out and do some community work. The unhealthy way is to get on drugs, and that's what she did. Mm. And on heavier and heavier and heavier drugs, and then seven years after Tariq died, she was on heroin, and uh, she essentially committed suicide. So she's no longer with us, and I so wish she could have forgiven and, you know, yes, and um, I don't know if you've seen the film um, Forgiveness Stories for Our Time, Johanna Lunn. Um, I interviewed her on the show, and there were several people who said they would never use the word forgiveness uh, because right. of this thing you're talking about, the, the absolute horror of their family and friends if they were to say, I forgive uh I forgive the person who who murdered my son, daughter, etc. However, there was a quality of peace that led me to think with several of the people who said that, that in fact, there was forgiveness in, in the sense of seeing the difference between that human being and what they had done and, um, and working towards um, healing, for want of a better yeah. word. So I I, uh, I just wanted to put that in in terms of not everybody does use that word, but they do have that quality in some way. They're able to grieve and move forward. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, there is a good Turkish uh, adage that says, "He who conceals his grief does not find a remedy for it." Uh, ah, mm. and and beautiful and I quote. Think that, uh, yeah, and I think that, uh, there, as I said earlier, that grieving is medicine. And I know you'll talk a lot about that on your program. Absolutely. And that uh, we have lost uh, uh, the, the, you know, the, the grieving uh, in our culture because pain is something uh, none of us like. You know, you have a slight headache, you want an extra centile or no, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. And, uh, and, and then you've got to take another one. In my Sufi tradition, uh, when somebody passes, like Tariq did, we have a 40-day grieving period where you're not supposed to cook or clean house. I had people from my mosque bring breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I, you know, I lived by myself. I had so much food in the house. <laughs> and, I had to t- and I had to tell the story. And I couldn't even say Tariq. I couldn't say died because it would take me forever, and they would wait. And since he died in such a tragic way... Uh, They wanted to know the details, and I thought, I can't tell this story one more time. And I had to do that for 40 days, and Uh, another group uh. come in. Every hour we chant, we pray, and I had to tell the story. It was painful. It was like taking the scab off the wound. Absolutely. When the scab scab reformed, it was a little smaller. And then I was told after the 40 days were over that the reason we do this is that when somebody passes, the 40 days are allocated for grieving because the soul of the departed person stays in close proximity with family and friends. 
and, 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 you are, and that's the time you agree. But after 40 days, I was counseled by my spiritual teacher that now your son's conscience, your, you know, your son's soul is at a different consciousness and is preparing for his forward journey because there's journey after we leave this world. And continuous <laughs> grieving after the 40 days <clears throat> will impede his journey in the new world. So my advice to you is instead of grieving, do good, compassionate deeds. Deeds. Good, but, compassionate deeds done in his name are our spiritual currency and will provide high-octane fuel for his forward journey. And I thought, why don't they teach you this stuff in college, you know? <laughs> that leads right to where I want to start in the next segment. We're going to take a break now, but... Um, that, uh, I want to talk about restorative justice because you talk about it a lot in the book and, and it's a way of, you know, obviously your work in schools is one way that you have gone forward as you just spoke about and also um, your desire to get the word out about restored, restorative justice is another way. So let's talk about that when we get back. And listeners, okay. you can you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Azim Kamisa, go to www.azimkhamisa.com, azimkamisa.com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I've been talking with Azim Kamisa, author of, among other books, From Murder to Forgiveness, about the power of forgiveness and the work that he does to end youth violence in schools and in uh, his speaking engagements worldwide, um, worldwide talks about uh, the, the loss of his son and how that has led to forgiveness and, and work with um, cultivating that in other people. And uh, Azim, 
I was very taken with, uh, I know quite a bit about restorative justice. I have some um, friends in my life who work in that field, including an, an attorney, a uh, friend of mine. And I, I just think it's so powerful, um, the idea that people can re- be restored out of, um, out of these terrible experiences such as yours. And um, I'd love to start this this segment with the piece from your book about how you see restorative judge, justice and then, you know, link it with, with the other work you do because it seems so connected to me, of course. Both, both things or all things are coming out of a forgiveness mentality or spirit. Uh, but but I'd love to introduce people both to your writing and to restorative justice because far few people have heard about it. Right, you know, the, the, so I think maybe a little preamble. You know, the, to understand RJ, which is restorative justice, you have to understand the criminal justice system as, as it exists. So when the you know we inherited all the criminal code from our pilgrims who all came from Europe, which are all monarchies. In a monarchy, the king or the queen both owns the land and the people. So when there's a crime committed in a monarchy, it's always the king or the queen against the offender. In the United States, we do not have a king or a queen, so the state takes that role. So in my Mm -hmm. case, it was the state of California against Tony Hicks. Now, RJ takes a different approach, saying, you know, what the hell has the state of California got to do with a crime? There are Mm -hmm. three parties. In a crime, there's a victim, there's the offender, and there's community. And the state can be a facilitator, but they can't be a direct party. And they believe justice is not done until three things happen. First, you've got to make the victim whole. Well, you can't bring my son back. But working with the grandfather and eventually working with Tony, although we're still working with him on videos and tapes and all of that, you know, there's meaning because my son did not die in vain. And to the extent that I can be restored, I believe I have, because less kids are ending up dead or in prison. The second part of RJ is to bring the offender back into society as a contributing member, which we have done with Tony. And I also do this work in prisons and also with offenders. And 70% of the kids that go through my program are just like Tony. They are contributing, you know, there are tons of resources in prison. And the third piece is to heal the community. And by us doing the work in our community in schools, we are healing the community. So it's a much better system. It's a win for the victim, and it's a win for the offender, and it is a win for the community. So, you know, having given that uh, preamble, uh, I have a chapter on the sort of justice in my first book. And I may read a, a page on page from that book. You might ask, why should we care what happens to criminals? After all, they are criminals. All they deserve is punishment. I believe there are three very good reasons we should care. First, the vast majority of criminals do return to society at some point. In California, the only crime which carries a death sentence or life in prison without possibility of parole is first-degree murder with special circumstances. Most of the criminals are going to rejoin the community if they can't heal and be restored as functioning members of it. There's a good chance they will return to crime. When that happens, they lose. Their new victims lose. We all lose. 
we must find a way to bring them in. When people feel connected to a group, they are much less likely to harm its members. Second, I believe that every human is a repository of unique gifts. With few exceptions, despite criminals' bad acts, something of value is buried within them. As with mining of precious metals, it might require a lot of effort to find it, dig it out, get it to the surface, separate it from the dross, polish it, and reveal its value. But each of us has something to offer that's ours alone, not duplicated in anyone else. The more we mine our resources and allow them to contribute to the community, the richer our lives will be. I would never be comfortable with the idea of slamming doors shut forever. I can never be comfortable cutting myself off from the chance that people might have something rare and valuable to give me, even if they once made a terrible mistake. Third, and perhaps the most important, the victim needs to heal too. When we are victimized by a criminal act, it is natural to feel anger. But permanent, unabated anger is destructive to us. It fills us with tension and hatred. It can become a consuming fire that blocks out love and joy. That blocks out love and joy. We feel that the anger is aimed at someone else, that criminal who harmed us. But left unchecked, the anger harms us. We've all read stories about criminals who have come to terms with the wrong they've done and want to find a way to atone. One of the first things they do is ask for forgiveness from the victim of their crime. That need for forgiveness is a vital part of our human makeup. When we know we've done bad things to others, that becomes a festering wound on our insides. To cleanse and heal that wound, we need absolution from those we have hurt. The criminal needs the victim's forgiveness to heal. And in one of human nature's strangest twists, full healing for the victim may require him or her to grant that forgiveness. There may be no other way to put down the destructive anger. On the other hand, no one wants to feel used. No one wants to be a sucker. Forgiveness is not going to be casually handed out as if it were penny candy. The stage must be properly set. That's what RJ tries to do. It's so powerful to me. I heard a story a friend of mine told me. I don't know which culture this is, unfortunately. I haven't been able to track it down, but I think it's somewhere in Africa, a particular culture uh, when, when, a tr- when a crime, what we would consider a crime is committed, the entire community, the entire village forms a circle with right. the, whoever did the original act in the middle and each right. person tells that person why they matter to the community. What, right. what is special about them that this community cannot do without? And then right. they are um, just, they were, everybody hugs them, as I understand it, um, and they are re- uh, they are taken in again as a full community member, and right, if they from- and, and if they um, commit another such act, they repeat the process. Right. It comes from the Aboriginal cultures of New Zealand and Australia. 
Oh, Australia. Everybody. I was a little wrong yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, actually RJ originates from there. And as you pointed out, they put the offender in the middle of the circle and everybody does say something positive about the offender and they make them, they encourage them to make amends with the victim. And they keep them close to the community because if you are connected to community, you are much less likely to reoffend. What we do is we put them in prison, but they come out better criminals than they went. Then they go in. So it's a totally a different approach. And RJ uh, is a much more humane and a holistic way to to go through you know, to 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 make sure that we give an opportunity to criminals to come back out and redeem. I mean, we have several uh, ex-offenders that uh, work at the foundation as panelists and tell their story, and they are so passionate because of the wrong they did to make sure that other young people don't follow in their former footsteps. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish I could tell you that we save 100% of those. No, there are going to be some that we can't save. You know, we have psychopaths and we have... The, you know, highly violent uh, uh, criminals. But in the programs that I am doing, I am definitely saving 70% of the kids that go through it, uh, which is huge because the recidivism rate... Yeah, especially, especially, rate. especially to me, considering that most people in any uh, inc- incarcerated situation and and most people vulnerable to what we're talking about have actually experienced violence and abuse themselves. And so they have a lot of healing to do often. Yeah. So the idea yeah, that even even regardless of of that fact, you can make that big of a difference means that we're just we're just lacking will. Uh, Absolutely. You know, that, um, and, uh, you know, given that you're a businessman, I, what comes to my mind is um, it's also just a really smart decision financially. And, you know, we are not getting anywhere putting people, locking people up, are we? No, we are not. And it's very, very expensive. I mean, I talk about that we can do our magic for $50 a kid a year. We spend $10,000 a year to provide free public education, uh, and the foundation safe school model costs 50 bucks, which is yes. not very much more. But if, if they expel and suspend students, which we are, which we are being able to, you know, uh, we, we are being able to reverse, they end up in prison and they end up in gangs. And the cost of incarceration is 140000 a year. And the recidivism is 85%. So you and, can spend that and, money every year. Yes, and not to mention when kids don't go to school, at least in California, the school doesn't get any money. <laughs> so you would be cheap at the price. We're going to have to end there for today. I, w- I could speak with you another several hours, I'm sure, but um, it's been wonderful to spend this time with you, Azim. And uh, I really uh, I really hope I can find some other ways to, your, to support your work. It, it's just fantastic. Well, thank you, Cheryl. Thanks for having me on your show. My pleasure, of course. Um, so, listeners, I hope you will go and and contribute in some way. Maybe there's a way that you can help to get this message out there. I just feel like it's so cre- crucial. I'm going to look for a way that I can. And you can find Azim Kamisa at 
www.azimkamisa.com, A-Z-I-M-K-H-A-M-I-S-A.com. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.